Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluel from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and each month I feature a fresh new research article in press waiting to go to print. And for this April edition to the podcast, Professor and Research Scientist Mary Beth Hall joins us from the USDA Forage Research Center to discuss two companion articles that are currently in press at the Journal of Dairy Science, and they are titled Substitution of Cane Molasses for Corn Grain at Two Different Levels of Degradable Protein. And and again, these are companion articles. So the first article focuses on lactating cow performance, the nutritional model predictions, and the potential basis for butterfat and intake response. And then that second article goes deeper and, and looks at the effects of ruminal fermentation on on digestion and nitrogen metabolism. So as I was scrolling through the journal this month, trying to find the article to feature for April, these articles just jumped out of me like a catalyst because I had just read another article about corn future prices. And I know our dairy industry, we're going to We're going to get creative with our dairy rations here in 22 to serve the energy needs of our herd. So we need to understand how the fundamentals of rumen digestion could change the herd's response to the ration. So before we get going, could you please tell our audience a little history about yourself? Reagan, thank you so very much for having me on the podcast. This is an absolute pleasure. My name is Mary Beth Hall. I'm a research scientist with USDA Agricultural Research Service at the U.S. Dairy Forage Research Center. My background, way the heck back, I was a county agent in Western New York, county extension agent working with dairy farmers, primarily on nutrition, which seems to be the root of many things that decide how well a farm is going to do. Not the sole root, but affects a lot of what we do. I went from there, got my PhD at Cornell, and went on faculty at University of Florida. Phenomenal dairy industry to work with, rather different than what I had in New York State. I was there in extension and research for eight years before I came to USDA 17 years ago here in Wisconsin. I've always been interested in understanding what's going on under the hood with the non-fiber carbohydrates because whether it's starch or sugars or fructans or whatnot, those seem to be some of the things that can either help cows be wonderfully productive mm-hmm. or we don't understand them well enough to make as best use of them as we might. And so these these two articles really focus in on the foundational ruminant nutrition topics, protein and energy. And, and really looking at the, the relationship of those two in the rumen. And we know collectively that these two feed classes represent over 80% of the feed dry matter intake. So in order to better understand that, to open up the hood and, and really investigate that, your team employed uh, 60 tie stall cows for an extensive feeding trial, and then another second trial with uh, 12 ruminally cannulated cows to really comprehensively understand what's happening in the rumen to result in the observations that you saw. So let's talk first, what was your team's goal with these two projects? Okay. And first things first, I have to give due credit because I was the lead scientist on the feeding trial, the production trial. And Dr. Jeff Zanton, um, one of my colleagues at Dairy Forage, was the lead on the on the rumen study. Um, we both jointly worked on these. Um, 
the interesting thing. I focus mostly on carbohydrates. Jeff focuses mostly on protein. What a good team. You know, yeah. he's wonderful to work with. Our main goal was to look at an interaction um, because a lot of the studies that have been done over time, they look at one thing, but not necessarily some of the things that could affect what's going on with that one thing. And some of the work that I've done in my laboratory had shown that depending on the amount and the type of protein, whether it was urea or whether it was peptides, degradable true protein that we gave to rumen microbes changed what they did with the sugars we offered to them. Mm -hmm. And so after a number of those studies to get background on what we might like to test, we took it to the cows. The, mm -hmm. the cows are the only ones who are always right. Then <laughs> um, said, all right, here we have two very different sources of carbohydrate. We have sugars coming from molasses, or we have starch coming from finely ground corn grain, and we have more degradable protein coming from soybean meal, or we backed the degradable protein off, had more room in undegradable or bypass protein, substituting soy plus and extruded soybean meal for soybean meal. And we asked the cows, what do you think? Mm -hmm. um, both ruminally and in terms of their production. And, and that's, it was following a chain that was some years in the making, going from what the microbes thought to what the farmers and the cows would care about. So you added these different treatments to a base ration that was about 20% BMR corn silage and 30% alfalfa silage. So this is a very standard base TMR um, that you would expect to see. The cows were right around 100 and, 101 days in milk and, and really made some nice production, averaging 105 pounds of milk uh, for the control ration. And so you can see all the details of this ration by going to the comments of this podcast. There's a clickable link to the Journal of Dairy Science. Since January, the Journal of Dairy Science has been an open access journal. And so you can access all of these articles that we interview, and you can see there on table one, the, the full ration. So you say the difference between the rumen degradable protein and then the diets with less degradable protein was primarily the extruded soy plus diet. Um, and then you talked a little bit about the non-structural carbohydrates or the energy portion. Could you tell us a little bit about the fine ground corn versus molasses? And then you, you had a variety of different molasses treatments. What could you expand on, on those treatments? What we looked at was the substitution of starch for water-soluble carbohydrates. So what our treatments were, under each level of degradable protein, either more degradable or less degradable protein in the diet, but the same amount of protein in the diets, we went from zero to five and a quarter and 10 and a half percent molasses. And we backed off the corn grain when we did that, but we did it so that the sum of water-soluble carbohydrates, which would include the sugars and molasses, and starch stayed the same across all of them, as did the amount of neutral detergent fiber, NDF, coming from forage. We, we tried to make them equivalent on the bases that we could so that if it was the degradable protein or undegradable protein, 
or if it was the sugars versus starch that were making changes in the animal's performance, we could pin that down. That is what we were after. Ah, and one other thing I do have to add here, this study was funded by Westway, which does indeed sell molasses. It was a very thoughtfully designed ration to be able to tease out the statistical differences at the end of the experiment to really see the the impact of the molasses and or the relationship of this molasses with the rumen degradable protein. So so let's jump right in and and dive into the results. Could you could you describe what what were some of the things that you saw different about the molasses treatment versus the corn grain treatment? I tell you what, first things first, I will tell you that some of the results that we got made no sense to us. But I will also tell you that if you put in the blood, sweat, and tears, so you make sure that the experiment was done properly, the answer is the answer. And I repeat again that the cows are the ones that are always right. One of the things that we saw, and actually this matters beyond this study, one of the things that we saw is that as we increased the amount of molasses in the diet and decreased the starch, um, we saw a decline in dry matter intake and milk production, but we didn't see a drop in the pounds of fat that those cows made, mm-hmm. which seemed really odd. I'm accustomed to, as you, I mean, as I go through the research literature, I'm used to seeing cows give a butterfat response when you feed them sugars. Mm-hmm. That, that's something more or less reliable to get, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But the dry matter intake going down seemed really weird. Mm-hmm. Feed efficiency didn't change. So milk going down with feed efficiency staying the same would mean that it was driven by the drop in dry matter intake. Mm-hmm. Okay. You go back through the research that's out there. And oftentimes it appears that cows will either go up in intake or hold intake the same when you feed them more sugars. But every once and again, what you'll find is that like on an initial addition of of sugars, they'll go up and then go down later. And we think, okay, technically speaking, you'd call it a hypothesis. Practically speaking, we've got a best guess (laughs) as to what happened. What's your hunch as far as what was happening there in the rumen? Okay. Actually, a hunch is probably even the better term. For any of you folks out there that have some high producing cows, and these cows were averaging a hundred some pounds of milk on study. I mean, when you feed them, what you find is that they chow down. I mean, it in some of the work done in the first three hours after you feed them, they'll have eaten about 30% of the day's ration. And by nine hours, they might've eaten 60%. What we think that ended up doing is that dose the rumen with carbohydrate that the rumen microbes fermented really rapidly when they got sugars, because sugars do have potential for fermenting very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And so that means in a short amount of time, the cow got to deal with all of these fermentation products that the bugs made very, very rapidly. Well, there is work out there that says that propionate, one of the fermentation products that the bugs will make, 
can depress dry matter intake. So think about this. The cows dose themselves with a whole pile of feed that had more sugar in it. It fermented very rapidly, including to producing propionate. And we think our hunch is that by producing that much propionate that quickly, that's what depressed the cow's dry matter intake. That's what we're thinking. You can see it so clearly there in, in paper number two on figure two, it, it's a visual representation of exactly what you're saying there. 12 hours after feeding, you start to see that propionate climb at, at the demise of acetate. And we, and we know the relationship between that acetate propionate ratio, and, and you can see them just in lockstep there 12 hours after feeding. And, and these are some machines. I like to compare these high productive, just past peak lactation animals that they're like Lamborghinis. We're, we're not feeding Ford Tauruses here, right? And so they're, they're finely tuned. And, and it's, it's really interesting to, to watch the ebb and flow as you're feeding these very specific diets to the animals and, and seeing their response. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about well, well, hang, hang on, can, yes. can, can I give a, a practical thought to the farmers out That'd there how great. to deal with this? Yes. And, and this is, this is again, and Oregon, I, I really like the word hunch because I think it's about right. So if cows chowing down can increase the chances that their dry matter intake could be depressed because of the propionate production, because propionate can depress intake. Mm -hmm. This is since the whole idea of how do you get cows to even out their feed consumption? I mean, shoot, going back four years, if we take a look at evening things out, it can be feeding more times per day. Yeah. It can be put up the feed more times per day. So the cows are encouraged to go and eat more times per day. The practicality. It can be avoiding putting the cows in a position where they think they need to slug feed. And that can happen when we're stocking more than 100% or a lot more than 100% within the pens. Mm -hmm. um, and the cows figure that they need to get there to compete. Yeah, that learned behavior. You got it. So I, I put it out there to the dairy farmers and to our nutritionists and to our veterinarians. Don't look at these numbers like something weird. Put them in context of things you already know will change the pattern of how cows eat and see what you can do to even that out for the animals. It, it can have a variety of favorable impacts on what happens, including reducing sorting so that they're getting a good balanced diet at any point and not maybe the grain mm -hmm. or maybe the forage only that they would choose. Uh, when I worked with Jeff Ferkins out in Ohio state and, and Bill Weiss, we, we wound up feeding some molasses to the herd there. I loved feeding molasses. And while it didn't always make economic sense, um, I loved it. I loved what it did to the ration. I love that it, it appeared to increase intakes. Um, it just, made a more consistent TMR. And I'm not trying to sell molasses to the listeners, but 
I can't lie, it kind of saddened me that we didn't see at least an equal response. And I wonder, even with the slightly negative or or drop in dry matter intake under these market conditions um, where feed is so expensive, can we tolerate a certain level of dry matter intake decrease to to offset the cost of the ration? I mean, going back through the work that's been done by other researchers, I mean, a lot of times when you're dealing with a lower level of molasses inclusion, let's say four to five percent or something like that, they're seeing the positive responses. I think one of the things we ran into in this study is if you look at how much these cows were eating. Right. 60. Yeah. Uh huh. Pound. Right. Dry matter intake. I mean, this is where I get back into what level do you want to feed? I mean, for what level fits? And I'm not sure we have that precisely down, but but it might, it might. Mary Beth's hunch, okay, uh, might be four to five percent. And one of the things that molasses does, and, and some other feeds do as well, is we add them to the diet, they get it to stick together so cows can't sort as easily. And that has some benefits. Mm-hmm. With feeding molasses, I would strongly recommend that you feed a degradable protein, okay? Because it's something that readily fermented, you're going to need to give the bugs the kind of protein they need to make it work, which is degradable protein. Okay, so I know a lot of producers listening in likely are getting paid on on components also. And so could you talk a little bit about the diet response that you guys saw for the pounds of fat and protein? Okay, gladly. One of the things that sugars pretty reliably do is give us a butterfat response. And, you know, the funny thing was in this study, even though pounds of milk went down, the pounds of fat did not go down which was uh, amazing. And as the pounds of milk went down, as I said, along with dry matter intake, the percent fat went up. Um, So like percent fat, when we were looking at the molasses diets going from zero to five and a quarter to 10 and a half percent molasses with more degradable protein, we were looking at going from about a 3.39% fat to 3.75 to 3.93% butterfat, mm-hmm. okay? As we increase the molasses in the diet and, and that counterbalanced what, what ended up happening with intake in milk. Now that didn't happen with the protein and the lactose. As intake went down and milk went down, they followed. So what on earth is going on with molasses? This is pretty much a sugar response. Mm-hmm. The best we can figure out, and this is actually after some discussions with Bill Weiss from Ohio State, I worked through some of the energetics on what on earth was going on here. Again, what's going on underneath the hood so we can tune it up. And when sugars ferment in the rumen, you typically get more butyrate. Mm. I mean, the main fat... VFA, volatile fatty acids you've got are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Sugars give you a greater proportion of butyrate than we get from any of the other things we ferment that I've ever seen. The impact that 
butyrate has on de novo fatty acid synthesis that we're getting a handle on is really important. Make the cow making fatty acids from scratch for milk for milk fat, butyrate has a positive effect. It makes it more energetically efficient and it leaves more acetate either for use as energy or for producing more butter fat, according to the calculations. And so that could be very easily where things like sugars are having their impact is by providing more butyrate, let alone the acetate they provide that the cow can use to build fatty acids. Altering those chemical compounds in the rumen. So this particular setup, I know that you have a full TMR and you're getting a lot of really nice intake response from, from the cows on test. So I know, I know this question is not what you researched, but I wonder, uh, there's, there's quite a few listeners out there that might be taking advantage of that lush vegetative grass that's coming on. And they might be feeding a, a partial mixed ration to a smaller type herd. And we know that that protein is readily available to the rumen. So what, what do you think a response would be at a, a say, 5% inclusion of molasses for the spring time and utilizing that rumen degradable protein as efficiently as possible? I'm not sure. Um, and, and okay, you can tell I was in an in extension because I'll also say it probably depends. Um, <laughs> yeah. for, for, for what we're looking at, I mean, that protein in that lush grass is some of it's going to be true protein and some of it's going to be non-protein nitrogen. Okay. Um, and both used readily in the rumen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That lush grass, depending on how much sunlight we've got and what the temperatures are, might also have a lot of water-soluble carbohydrates, mm-hmm. okay? It's also going to contain a lot of water. You know, it, I'm sitting here thinking I'm doing malpractice if I'm going to give advice on rations that I've never seen because it's going to depend how that fits in with other things. I can't tell you how the molasses will fit with that. Right. because we'd need a better handle on what that grass is bringing to the table, even besides the protein. Right. And it's, man, it's always a constantly evolving ingredient in that partial mixed ration and can be some challenging to manage. And some folks do it more successfully than others. That's for sure. And you just need to work closely with your nutritionist because each farm might respond differently. Okay, so for our nutritionists that are listening in, could you expand a little bit on the modeling aspect of this of this first paper and looking at if they're utilizing uh, the Cornell ration program or the 2001 version of the NRC, what, what are some nuances that you were able to find in this project that they need to be aware of as they're writing these rations going forward? One of the major reasons for doing this study was the interest in seeing how diets that didn't have a lot of starch in them, for example, ended up being predicted by some of the models that we have out there. And the two that we looked at were the 2001 NRC and uh, using NDS, we looked at CNCPS 6.55. The interesting things that we found were that for diets that were higher in degradable protein, both the NRC and the CNCPS NDS 
underpredicted cow performance when you put it on a metabolizable protein basis, but they came closer when we looked at it on an energy basis. When we increase the amount of undegradable protein in the diets, they overpredicted cow performance both on an energy and a protein basis, though looking at it, it looks like the NRC on a protein basis came closer. So when you're working with rations on farm, if you're looking at very degradable carbohydrates, and this might be high moisture corn, and it might be sugars, you need to keep an eye on the degradable protein and then work with the cows because the models that we're currently working with might underestimate the value of that degradable protein to making those rations work. But again, it's going back and forth and working with the cows to see what you need to do. And they'll tell you not only with production, but also those components and and pounds of components. Absolutely. Fascinating. I just am so fascinated by the bovine beast and her ability to digest the, all of these ingredients at a unique way. She, she truly is profound. Is she not? I mean, what a, what a cool animal to, to study and devote your life to. Amen. I, I, yeah, I mean, it just, the, it's fascinating. You know, at, at the end of the day, the takeaway, <laughs> the, the takeaway I have from this study Okay, and and having having worked with cows for a few decades now and also liking cows and being amazed, like as you just pointed out, with what they do, you know, my takeaway from this study and with the rest of what I know is that no molasses or no sugars versus starch are not going to put your dry matter intake in in the ditch. but we need to understand what are the things that are going to factor in. And again, what I would say is at the end of the day, if you're looking for a component response and you're going to try feeding feeds with sugars, keep an eye on the butter fat. If you're going to try feeding sugars and knowing they are going to ferment rapidly in the rumen, make sure you have enough degradable protein there for the rumen bugs to work with and make sure that you don't let the cows slug feed. Okay. Make sure that you do what you can through your management to even out what the cows eat over the course of the day. Just figure these cows that we fed were all in tie stalls. They were not competing for feed. And when feed got put down in front of them, they would devour it for like a couple hours before they take a great big drink of water, lay down, start ruminating, and then fall asleep. Make sure that you manage, I mean, whether you're feeding sugars or not, so that you even out the feed intakes and odds are you'll get better performance. But tell you what, the cows will tell you. Yes, always. Always they will. Well, Dr. Hall, this has been very informative and I want to thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day to learn about how sugar and starch can respond to these different levels of degradable protein in the rumen and to better understand that dairy cow and what's happening under the hood in the rumen. 
I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the April edition of the Dairy Science Digest, a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to your ears. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles in press, sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided by your University of Missouri dairy team. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Blue with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day.